So I have a bit of a confession to make, something that I struggle with greatly. I'm terrible with name. It's one of those things that I try to hide, but I'm not good at hiding because it doesn't take long for people to realize that you're terrible with names, especially if you just meet them. Um, I don't know what it is, but so often, especially when I first meet people, I'm never confident that I get their name right. Uh, I check with Alicia after we meet folks to make sure that I got the name right because I'll often think John's or James's or I'll often think Sharon's or Sherry's. Sometimes I'll forget the name of someone I know well. It just escapes me in a moment and it drives me insane. This happened to me just a few weeks ago with the youth kids. Uh, it, was a Wednesday, it was that Wednesday we got those blow-up ball suits. Uh, our plan was to have a big sumo wrestling tournament, and I was going to make a bracket and have all the kids in the bracket, and they were going to sumo wrestle each other out of the circle, and the person knocked the other one out would go on, and it would be this whole thing. We got here that day, though, and one of the balls was missing the, the stopper to keep it from deflating. Uh, and so we had to go a different route. These kids are ingenious, though, so they looked at it for five minutes, and they said, we already have a circle, we have a ball, let's just constantly try to tackle the person that's in the ball and do a stopwatch to see how long they can stay in and the person that stays in the longest wins. Uh, and so I write everybody's name down on the dry erase board to uh, put everything in there. But there was one kid, Luke, who hadn't been there for a couple of months. And Luke was standing right behind me as I'm writing the names down. And I've written every name down but Luke's because I can't remember Luke's name to save my life. And he can tell, because he leans over kind of close to me and says, hey, Corey, my name's Luke. And uh, it was, I, he was being kind-hearted about it. Uh, he was just, I said, I'm sorry, it just happens to me sometimes. He said, I understand. Uh, I don't know if he did or not, because he's not yet 30. Uh, so he might not know how this works, but it'll come to him at some point. Um, but it's a nightmare for me. It's a nightmare constantly. I am constantly scared that I have someone's name wrong, that I'm going to forget it. It's something that I struggle with greatly, uh, especially if there's two people in the same place that have a name that sounds similar. Uh, it took me the first six months of being at church here before I was confident that Sally was Sally and Sandy was Sandy, and I wasn't getting those two names mixed up. <laughs> and knowing who those people are, it's just those names sound similar, so it gets crossed up. And I know y'all probably have a similar thing with people in your family. My dad, especially if he's been around his brother, calls me Guy, it's my uncle, uh, for six weeks. It's like every time he sees my uncle, it's like I get called Guy 20% of the time. It's, Eden, how often do I call you Winnie? Like five times a day. Okay, see, <laughs> see? Um, but it's, this is such a struggle because there's something about your name. There's something about your name that that kind of you know it says something to us psychologically even uh, there's a guy named uh, Dale Carnegie who said a person's name is to him or her the sweetest and most important sound in any language I think we're wired in such a way that our name has a certain kind of magic over us our name has some sort of power over us that that we can't really describe there's something uh, about hearing someone you love saying your name that sparks joy. As a kid, hearing your whole name, especially with the middle name in it, has a meaning too. For so many people, our name is the quickest and easiest way to make us feel seen. 
I say all this about names because our gospel text this morning, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, is a story of two people and only one of them is given a name. This parable is in a long line of parables in Luke's gospel. As Alicia pointed out earlier, we've uh, heard quite a few of the parables that are in Luke's gospel over the last couple of weeks. Many of these parables talk about the relationship between the wealthy and their relationship with the poor. We've talked about so many of these over the last few weeks that at some point when we're hearing them week in and out, week in and week out, we say, we get it, Jesus, you like poor people, let's talk about something else. So much so that by this parable, we're often thinking of other things to focus on. With this story, we could say, okay, so is this a parable or is it a true story? Is this a story of uh what is actually happening in the afterlife before Jesus shows up and we start trying to make this this grand theological discussion of what the the afterlife looks like before the resurrection uh you might have heard that before you might uh, also hear folks focus on Lazarus you might hear folks hear that name and think about the Lazarus that is Jesus's friend and think this is one guy who just dies a lot it could be that similar situation, uh, which is something that's happened throughout church history to the point where the uh, feast days for these two Lazaruses are the same. It is the same day that we uh, talk about uh, expecting resurrection and also bless dogs because the, the poor beggar uh, had dogs licking his sores. So it's a day that in church history has always been a day to bless dogs. It's just one of those weird tidbits I found this week. But in focusing on the afterlife before Jesus or focusing on who this Lazarus might be, we tend to miss the important truths that this story is trying to show us. As we said before, we have a rich man and a beggar at his gate. For years, this Lazarus sat outside the rich man's door, only hoping for some sort of compassion. All he wants is the scraps from his table. All he wants is the trash, basically but to no avail. And when they die, because they both die, Lazarus is confronted in the, or comforted in the arms of Abraham while the rich man languishes in pain. The rich man asks for some sort of respite, asking Abraham to send Lazarus with some water. But the thing I find fascinating is that he doesn't say, hey, send someone, or he doesn't say, hey, send some angels, or he doesn't even say, hey, I recognize that beggar, send him. He calls the beggar by his name. He says, send Lazarus there to bring me water. Just a tip of his finger. This one line to me flips the story on its head. You see, when we talk about God and what God expects of us, sometimes we talk like the lawyer who came to Jesus asking, who is my neighbor? We act from a position of ignorance not of understanding. It's easy to read this story of Lazarus and the rich man and assume the rich man was just going about his day ignorant to the going on around him. That Lazarus wasn't even a blip on his radar. That his mistake was not paying attention. But the text today tells us that there's only so much ignorance can do in the face of the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us that the rich man wasn't blind to the deeds of Lazarus. He knew of his existence. He just didn't care. 
He lacked compassion to the man in need in his proximity. To the scribes and Pharisees listening to him preach that day, he was telling them the same thing. He was telling them that feigned ignorance won't save them. There is no way to say, I didn't know. That they know what they should be doing and that they should be doing it before it is too late. As Alicia told the girls, this is a wake-up call telling them to change before it is too late. It wasn't hard to know Lazarus's name. What the rich man struggled to do was say it before it was too late. It wasn't that he failed to recognize him. It was that he failed to humanize him. What happens next shows us even more that the rich man wasn't inept, was not incapable of compassion, because when Abraham says he is unable to send Lazarus across the chasm to bring him water, he says, well, then send him to my five siblings to save them. The rich man is indeed filled with compassion. He's filled with compassion for his family. He's filled with compassion for those that it is easy to feel compassion for, but you see all of the compassion in the world for our families and our friends still fails to bring forth the kingdom of God in our world. It's so easy, though, for us to fill our days with good friends and family needs that we fail to even have the time or energy to love the way Jesus loved. Something I experienced this week while we were at the beach was the fact that no matter how much I wanted to, after we got home from dinner, after we had a whole day playing with the kids and then went out enjoying some very, very good fish, that I just could not keep my eyes open, no matter the day. At some point, we have only so much energy we can spend. We have only so much. It's different for different people at different times and different seasons. But no matter what we do, there is no way that we can do everything that we need to do. So it's a matter not of if we spend our time, but how. It's not a matter of if we have compassion, but where our compassion goes. As Jesus is telling this story of a poor man and a rich man, each of them meeting the end that is destined for each and every one of us, he only names one man. Lazarus receives a name from Jesus. The rich man does not. While the rich man failed to give the beggar the name he deserves, Jesus turns this over on its head. And it's easy for us to, to think that, that Jesus is doing this sort of tit-for-tat, this sort of you-receive-your-comeuppance kind of thing. But Jesus is employing a sort of apocalyptic language here. And apocalypse is one of those words that has been ruined by zombie movies, basically. Uh, we think of the word apocalypse as the end of the world, as the way that things get terrible and the way that everyone fights over cans of Vienna sausages and Twinkies, because that's the way we look at apocalypse in this day and time. But that's not what the word means. Really, it means an unveiling, a peak at what could come to pass. This isn't an apocalypse in the vein of the walking dead, but rather it is an apocalypse in the vein of Ebenezer Scrooge and a Christmas carol. 
I realize August is a weird time to talk about Christmas, but in Dickens's A Christmas Carol, the rich, miserly Ebenezer Scrooge is visited on Christmas Eve by three ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past, who shows Scrooge his life before he became cynical and miserly, stuck in his ways. The ghost of Christmas present that shows Scrooge the people in his life that he fails to see. And finally, the ghost of Christmas future who brings the apocalypse view of his own gravestone. It's weird to me that a gravestone alone is enough to really kind of affect Scrooge because we all die. This isn't something new. This isn't something that we did not realize. Alicia and I were listening to a podcast on the way back from the beach that was talking about the effect of realizing that everyone dies. And a guy was telling a story about, as a six-year-old, realizing that Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Grandma were all dead. It's just like, oh, okay, so this isn't just something that happened to one person. This is something that happens to everybody. And for some reason, those two presidents were enough to really kind of nail it in his head. But it is something we all realize at some point. We all die. The rich man and Lazarus weren't special in their ends. Neither one of them did something in dying that nobody else has done. But it's in this view that Scrooge, seeing his unfortunate end and seeing that he's alone in it, that he's able to realize that he's not put his efforts where it really matters. He's failed to be his true self. He's failed to be who he actually wants to be. And he's lost his own name in the shuffle. I saw a tweet from a pastor this week that said, serious question, what does the gospel have to say to the rich? It's something to think about. We talk so much about good news for the poor. We talk so much about blessed are the poor, about how hard it is for the rich man to see the kingdom of heaven. But uh, in my preparation for this, I let this question soak into me over a couple of days. And after thinking on it, I finally went back to the tweet to click and see the responses. Because there's quite a few pastors that responded. So many of them said, it says the same thing it says for everyone. That you have an opportunity to live and work in the very kingdom of God, in bringing grace and beauty in this world. Just by living in this country and by owning a car, we are already some of the richest humans to ever live on this planet. It doesn't feel like it, though, sometimes. Because really, honestly, that doesn't make life an easy street. It does not make life suddenly simple. But you know as well as I that we're not just hitting an easy button and living the life to the fullest and doing whatever we want. But in our hustle and bustle, it is easy to pretend that we don't see the hurting. It's easy to get caught up in our own lives and our own struggles and situations. But in doing so, we're ultimately forgetting who we are. We're ultimately forgetting who God has called us to be. It's in remembering, in saying our own names that God has given us, saying child of God, 
saying image of God and saying those same names of the people around us that were saved. Shall we pray?